All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And this statement by our brother Paul to Timothy includes the book of Jude. The general epistle of Jude, and please open your Bibles to this small one-chapter epistle toward the end of your New Testaments, just before the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. I do not want to waste any time in an introduction other than to say a couple of sentences. We do not need paragraphs, chapters, or books to prove the authenticity of the book of Jude. Though men have written paragraphs and chapters and books questioning its authenticity or affirming its authenticity. We believe the 66 books of our King James Bible are God's Word and God's words to us by faith and fruit. The reason we hold to the 66 books of the King James Bible and not the 75 books of the Catholic Bible is because the 66 books have 2,000 years of spiritual evidence and righteous prosperity following them when the 75 books of Rome have so many internal flaws and they have the blood of the martyrs following those 75 books. We believe the canon of Scripture by faith. There is no scientific nor historical nor linguistic evidence to tell you that the 66-book Bible is the Bible and the 75-book Bible is not the Bible. We believe it by faith because God said He would preserve His Word and fruit, that the Word of God would bear fruit wherever it went. That's why we believe it. And among those 66 books, we have the little epistle of Jude. What we have here in this epistle are not my words, and they're really not Jude's words. They're the words of the living God, written down by Jude, but given by the Holy Spirit, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We believe that each word that we're about to read is the word of the living God. The individual word of the living God for us. We have invested our lives in this world and our hope of eternal life in the world to come on these words. Outside of these words, there is little evidence and there is no proof of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not learn about the Lord Jesus Christ by admiring a sunset. You can learn about the glory of God because the Bible tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. But the heavens don't tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. Jesus ridiculed the Jews, and they are they which testify of me. It's the Bible that tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the end of my introduction. 
I could give you an outline and I could say many other things about Jude, but I want to get right into the meat of this epistle. I hope that you have already read it. I hope that you'll read it again. I hope that the bold among us might even memorize it. It only has 25 verses. If you're under 25, you could memorize it in two days. If you're under 75, you could memorize it in two weeks. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. It's only 25 verses long. You could memorize it. I hope that didn't sound disrespectful. I'm halfway between those two ages, and I realize the trend. Let's take up verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace. And love be multiplied. Amen. amen and amen. What a salutation. This gives us an idea that there is something better to say to someone when you write them a letter than, How are you? I am fine. <laughs> Don't all letters start off that way by our younger generation? How are you? I am fine. How about this opening? Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Now that would be a scriptural salutation. We look into the book of Ruth, and we find that when Boaz came to visit the field where his reapers were reaping, he said to them, The Lord be with you. They responded, The Lord bless thee. Those are two scriptural salutations. We find as we read the scriptures... But another salutation that's mentioned, and it's mentioned that we ought to say it continually, is, let the Lord be magnified. But we have one right here that's pretty good. First of all, let's take a couple of minutes and think about the man Jude. There are five men in your New Testaments with the name Judas. And this man's name was Judas. This is the only time in the entire Bible that we have the word Jude. It's just a shortened verse. Variation on the word Judas, which happens to be the Hebrew to Greek to English word Judah, a very popular name. There were many Jews named after the fourth son of Jacob, Judah. And when it comes into Greek and then into English, it's Judas. Always holding your finger at the little epistle of Jude, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 where we have a King James Bible explain what I just said to you without you ever wasting a minute learning Hebrew or Greek. God has given His Word in English, and the English Bible that we call the King James has more fruit going forth than all the Hebrew and Hebrew lexicons and Greek versions going today. If you look at the spiritual fruit of men who preached the gospel over the last 400 years in the English tongue and then translated this version into a thousand other languages and dialects, God has put His divine stamp of approval on this Bible. Because where the words of God go, there's good things that follow. Like truth and liberty, freedom, righteousness, holiness, and all the other graces 
that the Holy Spirit works in those that are truly His and works in those that believe the words of God. Amen. But enough of, enough of that. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, we can see in verse 2, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, the other eleven sons of Jacob. So there we have, for us, we're told that Judah equals Judas. Now, if we read much about Judas in the New Testament, we find out that there was a man named Judas Iscariot who was the betrayer. This is not the man that wrote the epistle of Jude. No one would have respected or received anything that he wrote. His life ended with his bowels being dashed all over the potter's field. And Peter, raising up an assembly in Acts chapter 1 to replace him with Matthias by the choice of God. There is a Judas that owned a house in the city of Damascus where Saul of Tarsus was told to go and Ananias was told to go. And there Ananias found Saul of Tarsus, laid his hands on him, healed him from his blindness, and he received the Holy Ghost. That was in the house of a man named Judas. A popular name because it is Judah, the great tribe of the twelve tribes of Israel and the tribe from which Shiloh would come. Then there was a Judas that was a prophet who was sent out from the council of Jerusalem along with Silas. When Paul and Barnabas came down from Antioch of Syria to the church at Jerusalem to complain about some wicked teachers that had come up out of Jerusalem telling the Gentiles that they had to keep parts of Moses' law in order to be saved, Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem to remedy the situation and to correct that heresy that was beginning to rear its ugly head in the Christian church. After the Council of Jerusalem, James and the other apostles chose Judas and Silas, two prophets, to accompany Barnabas and Paul so that the four of them could go back to Antioch and there would be plenty of witnesses that this truly was the verdict of the Council of Jerusalem. So there we have another Judas. But this epistle opens up with some words that help us know which Judas it was. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. That's a partial giveaway. But then the next phrase is a complete giveaway. And brother of James. But if you read the New Testament, there were two Judases that had a brother named James. Judas, the apostle, one of the original twelve, had a brother named James. He was James, the son of Elpheus. But our Lord Jesus Christ also had a brother named Judas. And he also had a brother named James. Galatians chapter 2 tells us about James, our Lord's brother. Because our Lord's brethren were converted after his resurrection and joined the women in Acts chapter 1 and are spoken of in 1 Corinthians 9 as being examples to the whole church. But when it says in our inspired scriptures, and brother of James, we want to look for a Judas that was known throughout the New Testament as the brother of James, and we have one. He was one of the original twelve apostles. His name was also Thaddeus and Labaius, and he's known by those names. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. 
Now you say, well, that's not very nice that he always has to be known by his brother. Well, that's just the way it is. And that's how the Lord gives us a designation about this man. We only have one event in the life of Judas that we can read about. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But let's turn to Luke chapter 6 and see how Judas, Judah, or Jude, did you know that I am Jonathan, John, J-O-H-N, and John, J-O-N? You shouldn't be surprised when you read the Bible and find Judah, Judas, and Jude being the same person. I've also heard of David, Dave, and Davy. I've also heard of Robert, Rob, and Bob. Does that confuse anyone? Well, neither should these names. Right. And the Bible tells us. Yes. Didn't it tell us that Judah equals Judas when you read the New Testament about the Old Testament man? Right. What's the name of Joshua when it comes into the New Testament? Jesus. Acts chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 4. The successor of Moses, whose name was Joshua in the Old Testament, is Jesus in the New, because when that Hebrew name Joshua comes into Greek and then into English, it becomes Jesus. What happens to Elijah? It becomes Elias. How about Elisha? Eliseus. How about Hosea? O.C. And so forth. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when it was day... He, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, the high King of heaven, incarnate on earth in flesh, called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. There's six of them. Then, in verse 15, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Elpheus, and Simon, called Zelotus, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And there we have the twelve. James is called the son of Elpheus to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. Because James and John were the sons of Zebedee, and that was a separate James. This James was the son of Elpheus, and he had a brother named Judas. James, the son of Zebedee, had a brother named John. This is our Jude. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'll not turn you to the references, trusting that you already know that he was also called Thaddeus. And Labaius. And you can find that out by reading some of the other listings of the twelve apostles in the other gospels, where the only name that changes is that of Judas to Labaius or Thaddeus. John chapter 14, let's find a little event in the life of Jude, the writer of our epistle. Verse 21. Jesus speaking just before his death. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, And not unto the world. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. This little exchange took place between the Lord Jesus Christ and Judah, or Judas, or Jude, the writer of our epistle. This man heard Jesus say, We will love him, my father and I, will love the man that hears my words and keeps them, and we will come and abide with him. And he said, Lord, how are you going to do this? He was confused. And so we have the further elaboration which we delight in. That Jesus said, It's good for you that I go away, but if I go away, I will send the Comforter that he may remain with you forever. That is how, Jude, that I'm going to reveal myself to you and make myself manifest to you and not to the world. It's by the Holy Spirit that's going to dwell in you, Judas. And so we have an event in the life of Jude. You can tell that he wanted to have clarification about how the Lord would come and dwell with him. God the Father would come and dwell with him, and the Lord Jesus Christ would dwell with him, and yet the world wouldn't know it. They were used at that time to the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could they come and be with me and the world not know it? Because the physical presence of Jesus Christ was going back to heaven in just a few days, but the Holy Spirit would be here forever. Let's turn back to our little epistle. Jude was truly a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle is a messenger. And these men were chosen to bear a special message. And this message was carried throughout the world by these apostles. And the message was, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved in the nation of Israel by mighty signs and wonders that he did by the power of God, was killed by the wicked hands of the Jews and the Roman government, crucified on a tree, buried, sealed in a tomb by the signature of Pilate, raised the third day, seen of above 500 brethren, and ascended up into heaven, and he sits at God's right hand, and he's coming again to judge the earth. These 12 men, minus Judas Iscariot, plus Matthias, plus Barnabas, plus James the Lord's brother, plus the Apostle Paul, and plus other apostles we know not about, carried the message of the risen Lord Jesus Christ throughout the world. This is the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He has been raised from the dead by the power of God. He sits in heaven, and He is the only Savior from the just condemnation that the human race has brought upon itself by sin. And they preach that message everywhere. And as I said earlier this morning in my prayer from a text that I love so much, 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, meaning He was proven to be the Son of God by the power of the Spirit, seen of angels, 
The angels witnessed him on earth. They comforted and strengthened him on earth. And they received him up into glory because he was their new head. Preached unto the Gentiles. That message by our beloved brother Paul. He is the greatest apostle in the New Testament. He labored more abundantly than they all. And he was the apostle of the Gentiles. He is our man. We are Paulicians. We are Pauline. We are Paulicans. We are followers of Paul as he followed Christ. Jesus Christ was a Jew and was a minister of the circumcision. The apostle Paul was a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. And we follow him. He told us, be ye followers of me. As I am a follower of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 11. Because if you try to go read the Gospels and follow Jesus Christ, then you need to be going to visit the Pharisees. You need to be going to visit synagogues. But we don't follow any of that beggarly stuff of the Old Covenant because Jesus caused it all to pass away when he took their temple, their priesthood, their whole religion, and tore it apart and left At the end of the time of Reformation, the Gentile church here on earth with a few scattered Jews that were brought into it like the Apostle Paul. These are the apostles. And Jude was one of them. And he carried that message. And he cared about those that had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wrote this epistle. And he says he wrote it with great diligence. Because he was concerned about the believers that had believed the gospel. These apostles were gifted and they were very exceptional men. I want you to never forget that we are built upon the foundation, the foundation of our church are the prophets and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. The apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ are the foundation of our church, but the chief cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. He commissioned them. He enabled them. He gave them the Spirit above all other men. They had gifts that no other man could compete with. They could raise the dead and heal the sick. They could drink poison or any deadly thing and it wouldn't touch them. They could speak in any language without any preparation. They could defend the truth of the gospel in court without studying or even considering what they were going to say. They could preach without studying the Word of God because they were directly inspired by God. They had the gift of discerning spirits in other prophets and in men. They could cast out devils in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were mighty men. And through mighty signs and wonders, they turned the world upside down. As their own enemies testified. And Jude was one of them. Now he is known, if you turn in your Bibles and look from Matthew to Luke to Acts, you're going to find that Jude is identified as the brother of James, which is put here to tell us which Jude it is. But notice what he puts first. He doesn't put Jude, the brother of James, first. He puts Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Because that was more important to him, and that was more important to the Holy Ghost, that we know that about him, than that he was the brother of James. That he was the brother of James is of little value to us, except to identify which Jude it is. But that he is the servant of Jesus Christ reminds us that these words are coming from one of those chosen apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were great men. 
Much could be said about them. Much has been said in the past. I hope you remember some of it. It is the greatest gift in the church. The Lord hath set in the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, first, apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and so forth in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. When Jesus Christ ascended up on high, He gave gifts to men, according to Ephesians chapter 4, and He gave some apostles. Notice it was some of His disciples that were chosen to be apostles, not everyone. He gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. There's four gifts, four teaching gifts of the New Testament in order of importance, in order of ability, in order of their gifts and offices. They were the greatest in the church, and the church was built on them. And the Holy Spirit, as we read from John 14, was going to guide them into all truth so that they would remember everything that they had been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they remembered it, and as God blessed them to preach the full truth, He moved them by the Holy Ghost to take up a pen and to write epistles like this. And of all the epistles they wrote, and there are more than these, the Apostle Paul himself tells us in the book of Colossians that he also wrote an epistle to the Laodiceans. He told the Colossians to go get the epistle from the Laodiceans and to share their epistle with the Laodiceans. But only 27 Gospels and epistles remain because the rest died a natural death because God had not chosen the rest of them to be part of our inspired Bible. So we have these 27. You say, how did it happen? No one knows how it happened. The apostles put their divine approval, the, 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 the apostles put their apostolic approval upon certain books. See, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 puts his approval upon the writings of Paul. Right. And he speaks of them. The apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 puts his apostolic approval upon the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, because he quotes Luke as scripture. That's right. The Catholics want you to believe that the books of the Bible came into being at their church council in the year 397 and the year 400. Two church councils. But they were 350 years too late. Because the apostles had already confirmed what was the New Testament, and it had already developed in the church, and it has continued for 2,000 years. And Jude is one of them, and now we know a little tiny bit about this apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. He started out as a disciple, but in Luke 6, Jesus picked him from among this crowd of disciples that were following him. A disciple is simply a follower of a teacher who wants to learn and hold to that body of doctrine. But of those disciples, Jesus chose Judah as one of his twelve. And Judah was blessed by God, and it was to write an epistle, and it was preserved by God to be one of the special Books in the library of the New Testament, the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Now, in this salutation, he has now identified himself, Jude, otherwise known as Judas, otherwise known as Thaddeus, otherwise known as Labaius, otherwise known as Judah. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ because he chose me to be an apostle. I'm the brother of James, the son of Elpheus, one of the original twelve. Now he addresses those to whom he's writing. How does he salute them? To them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. He mentions three things about them and he doesn't mention their geography. 
He doesn't mention their nationality. So we know very little, very little at all, about the audience that Jude wrote to. He doesn't identify them in any way that we could say, like the Apostle Peter, when he wrote to the strangers that were scattered abroad, and James to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, and Paul to the saints that are in Rome, sometimes the designation is very simple by geographical location or nationality. But here, it's by their salvation. And I want you to get this, because Jude is about to tell us in a couple of verses that he gave all diligence to write unto them of their common salvation. But the only verses in the book of Jude about salvation really are verses 1 and 2 and verses 24 and 25. So we better pick up on these words. When an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Ghost, is remembering everything he was taught by Jesus and is declaring inspired words to us, these words become important. And the first designation of his audience is preserve. No, sanctified by God the Father. Sanctified by God the Father. It's important for us to remember, as we look at this epistle, and also to remember it when we look at any epistle, the Bible was not written to unbelievers. No part of the Bible was written to unbelievers. The Bible was written to believers. To them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Christ Jesus, and called. When Paul wrote Romans, he didn't write it as something to be put in the Roman newspaper. He wrote it to the saints that are at Rome. Called of God to be saints, whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And so we have this important reminder. Because unless a man is born again, the word of God can do him no good. The written Word of God cannot help a man that is not born again by the power of the Spirit of God. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness unto him, and neither can he know them, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It would not matter how good the presentation was, nor what kind of visual aids you had, even if you were to rise from the dead, you could not add weight to the Scriptures of God. If a man does not receive the scriptures of God, he's not going to be persuaded no matter what efforts you made. Luke 16, verse 31 tells us that. Abraham explained to the rich man that even if one were to come back from the dead and speak to his five brothers, if they're not persuaded by the scriptures, they wouldn't be persuaded though a man rose from the dead. And this is what we believe and know from the scriptures themselves. And so it is perfectly consistent with us to find out that every verse of Scripture is written to believers. They're the only ones that can benefit from it. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. If a man is in a state of death in trespasses and sins, his mind and his heart are so blackened and darkened in motive and ability toward God that the gospel can do him no good. The gospel is the good news that brings to light The life and immortality that is already in a person. God must regenerate them first. Then they hear the gospel. They understand it and believe it and want to obey it. The gospel is not the means by which those things occur. The gospel is the instruction that educates and converts 
the regenerate child of God to know how he ought to live in the world. And so epistles like this are written to believers to strengthen them in the faith and tell them how they ought to live. Sanctified by God the Father. Sanctification. It's a Bible word. It's a long word. It's a word that you haven't read in Sports Illustrated this past week. It's a word that you don't read in the Greenville News or the New York Times. It's a word that may be confusing to you, but it is so simple. Sanctification, because this audience was described, first of all, as being sanctified by God the Father. Sanctification is the act by which a thing or a person is made holy for the use of God. That's what sanctification is. We sanctify something when we make it holy. We consecrate it. We dedicate it. We appoint it. We make it holy so that God can use it. Look at Leviticus 21 and verse 8, always holding your finger in the little epistle of Jude. Let's go back to Leviticus. The word sanctify was used numerous times back here in the books of Moses. And let's find one of those and or two of them and remind ourselves what the word sanctification means. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 8. Thou shalt sanctify him therefore. This is the priesthood and the priests. Thou shalt sanctify him therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto thee, for I the Lord which sanctify you am holy. Now can you read that sentence and find out that sanctification and holiness are closely connected because to sanctify a thing is to make it holy and fit for the use of God. It tells us that. It tells us that over and over in the Bible. Now Jude started out by saying, sanctified by God the Father. This isn't difficult. God is holy. He just said so in Leviticus 21.8. Because God is holy, we have to be holy. And especially those men that approach closer to Him, in the Old Testament being the priests, had to be holy. Therefore they had to be sanctified and consecrated in order to do the work close to God. In order to touch the bread that had to do with God's worship. God is holy, so we must be holy to be with Him or to be ever, to ever be used by Him. God is holy, and without holiness, this is what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, no man shall see the Lord. No man shall see the Lord. When you go, when you read the book of Revelation, in the last couple of chapters as it describes the holy city of God, Coming down out of heaven, it says there is none that defileth that enter into it. You had better be holy or there is no place in heaven for you. Now there are degrees of holiness or phases. Let's not say degrees. Let's say phases of holiness. There are degrees in the practical sense, but there are phases of holiness where there are no degrees. And we want to remember those. But let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and rejoice in how we are sanctified by God the Father. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is how Jude begins. We don't want to blow over these words. If we blow over these words, we miss his reason for writing. Since he only used 25 verses, that means every word of what he wrote is important. 
And when he's going to tell you that he gave all diligence to write of the common salvation, you should ask yourself, where did he write of the common salvation? Right. Well, it's in verses 1 and 2 and 24 and 25. And it starts right off with the words, preserved, I mean, sanctified by God the Father. You can tell I want to get to preserved, can't you? <laughs> sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2. Do you, do you believe this verse and do you want to fulfill this verse? After having described in verses 9 through 12 the man of sin and all of his deceitful lies and that God would turn men over to strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 through 12. God shall send Men, strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, who receive not the love of the truth. Because of, because of that. But then it comes to verse 13, we have a but. It's one of the precious inspired buts of the Bible. A disjunctive. But is a disjunctive, meaning we're changing directions. We were going in one direction, but now we're going in a different direction. We were saying this about one category of men. Now we say this about another category. But, Paul writes, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. But, in contrast to those who were given strong delusion, God chose you from the beginning to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. What does sanctification mean? To be made holy. There are phases of God's work of sanctification. First of all, God chose us to be holy before the world began. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. When the Bible says, sanctified by God the Father, we want to take those words and milk them. We want to take those words and delight in them. Proverbs chapter 30 teaches us, every word of God is pure. Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word is inspired. We don't want to race past this to what you think is exciting later in the book of Jude. We'll get to it. I know it's got the prophecy of Enoch in it. I know it tells us about Sodom and Gomorrah. I know it tells us about men who despise dignitaries and who fight government. That they're like rabid dogs that need to be shot and put down. I know it says all that, but let's take it word by word and rejoice in what it does say about our common salvation. We are sanctified by God the Father. How does that start? Well, it started from the beginning when God chose us to salvation, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But now we're in Ephesians chapter 1. And it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. How did this happen, Paul? That we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. How do we Gentiles have all this, this huge salvation? According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. That we should be holy and without blame 
before Him in love. And then it goes on to describe more of that about being predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ and having our sins forgiven and our eternal inheritance predestinated for us. Down through verse 12. But here it tells us God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. That is God the Father's first act in our sanctification. Sanctified by God the Father. If you were to read the whole Bible, then you know what Jude just began with. The doctrine of election. Because that's God the Father's role in our sanctification. He chose us from the beginning. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 He chose us in Christ to be holy and without blame. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. And so immediately we see the doctrine of election because God chose some men to be holy. God chose some men to be sanctified. Very quickly, we know the phases of salvation. That's the eternal phase. What took place in eternity past in the counsel of God before the foundation of the world. Before there was a foundation laid for earth, ground, and dirt, and mountains. Before there was a foundation, God had already purposed To save his elect. And he was going to make them holy in Christ. Because he chose them by covenant to be represented in Jesus Christ. Who in the fullness of time came to earth. Took upon himself human flesh. Died on the cross as a substitute for those elect. Was received up into heaven. And not a single one of those elect will be lost. That is the gospel. That is the gospel and it starts with election. Because Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us. That God promised eternal life before the world began. How could he promise eternal life before the world began? Through his covenant relationship with the Word of God, who was going to take on flesh and be the Son of God. The next phase of salvation is the legal phase. And look at Hebrews chapter 10 about sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10. God purposing, God choosing, God electing us in Christ before the world began, doesn't make us holy. It's His purpose to make us holy. But God is just. God must have some way to make a vile, filthy, putrid sinner holy. How does He do it? He can't just will it. Because God has a holy nature. And He cannot accept something filthy and dirty that defiles without it being covered in the holiness of something. It needs to be sanctified. It needs to be made holy in a legal way. Jesus did that for us. Praise the Lord of heaven for his son, Jesus Christ. Look what it says in Hebrews 10.10. Having spoken of the will of God, I can't read the whole chapter to you, nor can I preach the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 9, it is describing the will of God that Jesus came to do the will of God. Lo, I come to do thy will. What was that will? Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God chose to sanctify us before the world began. Jesus came to do the will of God and sanctified us by the legal payment. Can you see that? Am I making it simple enough? It's one, this is the gospel and this is embodied in the words sanctified by God the Father. God the Father cannot just declare us holy. When we're sinners, someone had to cover us with real holiness. Someone had to anoint us in some way to make us holy. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that by the offering of himself once for all. 
verse 14, Hebrews 10, 14, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Do you know how perfect you are? You're as perfect as the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how perfect? Do you know how long your perfection will last? Forever! Because it is not dependent on your obedience. It's dependent upon the obedience of one that makes you perfect. It's His offering of His body once for all that made us holy and acceptable in the sight of God. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. If a man is ever sanctified, he will always be sanctified. If he's ever perfect, he'll always be perfect because Jesus Christ is his perfection. And Jesus Christ was applied to him not by his effort, but by the decree of God in the doctrine of election when he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So God's chosen us to sanctify us. God the Father, sanctified, because He chose us to be sanctified. He chose us to be holy. Jesus Christ came and offered Himself to pay the price, to provide the perfect righteousness and holiness that covers us. But you know what? We're born of two unholy parents. My parents sit in front of me, but they are unholy parents. They gave birth to an unholy son. I was a natural man. Unholy, unfit for heaven, in the purpose of God, chosen to be holy. By the death of Jesus Christ, positionally and legally holy in the eyes of God. In my being of body, soul, and spirit, unholy. I need another work done upon me. And the Spirit of God does it by washing me, and it's a better washing than my mama ever gave me. It's the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost in which I'm given a new man inside. It's called being born again from above by the Spirit in which I have a new man that is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4.24 Now I have two men. I have an old man and I can't wait for him to die. I have a new man and he's going to live forever. The new man is truly holy. The old man is totally unholy. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Praise His name. That's the vital phase of sanctification. That's when we're made holy with a new person inside us. A new being called the new man in the Bible. Do you know how holy I'm going to be soon? When this body dies and how holy you're going to be soon when this body dies and gets rid of the unholy part? Do you know how holy you're going to be? As holy as the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're in His holiness. You're in His righteousness. With that, we're clothed in heaven for eternity. Death. Where is thy sting? It's a blessing to the elect. They get rid of the unholy part of their nature. Do you know that you... It fights me every day. I hate it. I despise it. I like to tell the Lord... I like to confess my sins to the Lord. And then I like to confess my sinfulness. Because why do I have to keep confessing my sins unless I have a sinful part still in me? But I get rid of that at death. And I'm glorified in heaven. When the Lord Jesus Christ resurrects my body, He's going to make it a spiritual body and it'll be a holy body. This is the gospel. And this all comes out of those words and a whole lot more could be said. Because the doctrine of sanctification is very important because we worship a holy God. 
He is holy, and to be in His presence, you must be holy. No wonder it's called the Holy Scriptures. No wonder He's called the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sanctified by God the Father. Amen. He's going to make me holy, holy when Jesus Christ splits this atmosphere wide open and says, Rise! Amen. Live! And the graves of all the elect will be ripped open. And the elect will come forth and be given glorified, spiritual, holy bodies for their souls and spirits to inhabit for eternity. And will be in the presence of the Lord as holy as the Lord Jesus Christ, fit for the presence of God forever. And it all began with God's choice before he created. Right. Why did God create? To put into play his counsel before he created. He didn't create and then get stymied with us messing it up. He created the glorious plan of salvation, and then... He designed the glorious plan of salvation, and then He created. And we've just been fulfilling the most glorious drama in the universe for the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen. You've been chosen for the display of the glorious grace of God. And it starts by being sanctified by God the Father. Now, we've been called to holiness as well. But that obviously is not what Jude's talking about because he said, sanctified by God the Father. Not sanctified by your personal and practical obedience to the holy commands of Scripture. He tells us right here that it's the sanctification that God did. Let's go back to that little epistle of Jude and grab the next phrase. And I'm way behind schedule. Lord, forgive me. Hearers, forgive me. But it says those words for us to lay hold of that great doctrine of sanctification. There is another aspect to sanctification, and it's huge, and the Bible does spend much time on it. This is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. So there is a role that we play in our practical sanctification, our personal holiness, when we choose to live a holy life. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 7 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because God is holy, be ye holy, even as I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1. So that's personal and practical holiness, but that's not what Jude mentioned. Jude mentioned sanctified by God the Father. And that holiness, I put a whole lot more trust in than mine. How about you? Which holiness do you want to stand before God in? Yours or His? I want to be in His. You know what the Bible says my holiness and my righteousness are like? Filthy rags. I'll leave those rags to your imagination. He identified His audience as preserved in Jesus Christ. This is going to be Jude's theme. Because Jude is about to tell us that there are some men who were before of old ordained to condemnation. He is about to describe some wicked men that these saints were able to perceive as being very wicked and wonder about who is saved and who is not saved, who is going to make it. And so he says right off, preserved in Christ Jesus. And when he gets to the end, how's he going to close out? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Unto the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. 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 
So his emphasis is our preservation. Now we've already seen it in Hebrews 10.14, and I hope you liked it. For he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to the glory of God. Your perfection isn't based on you because you'll never be perfect. You'll only be perfect through what He's done for you. We only strive toward it. We can never achieve it, never obtain it. He's already achieved it. He's already obtained it. And He's already given it to us by the death of His Son. Preserved in Christ Jesus. The truth of the gospel is that God's elect can never be lost or lose their salvation. Preserved in Christ Jesus. Preserved. That means that there is someone acting upon the audience that Jude wrote. Right. Keeping them. Because they're preserved. That means they're passive. Someone else is active. God is doing the preserving. And we're told that in verses 24 and 25. Let me say it again. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Because you are unable to keep you from falling. Amen. But he is able. To keep you from falling and to present you faultless. Look at John chapter 6 and let us remind ourselves of the glorious truth of our preservation in Christ Jesus. God chose us in Christ before the world began. Ephesians 1 tells us that. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us that. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us that. We're chosen in Christ Jesus. Jesus, when he was here on earth, knew that. Jesus knew that men had been given to him, and he was to secure eternal life for them. John 6, 39. Verse 38. John 6, 38. So you get the flow of the whole sentence, the whole concept, the whole, the whole paragraph here. For I came down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Every one that God gave the Lord Jesus Christ to secure eternal life for, he will infallibly do that. And he will not lose a single one because that's the will of God. Jesus knew that was his mission on earth and he said he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't lose a single one. Look at chapter 10 in the, in the gospel of John. John chapter 10. Verse 26, John ten twenty six. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. As the elect of God, we are in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hand, there is no right arm like our Savior. And then, our Savior and we in His hand are in the hand of God, and no man is able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. We are secure forever, perfected forever. Amen. I'll lose none of them. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as declared by his apostles. And we have the apostle Jude telling us this. Preserved in Christ Jesus. 
chosen in Him before the world began. When He was here on earth, He knew what His purpose was, and that was not to lose a single one that God had given Him. John chapter 17, verse 2, As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. That means there is not one lost, and that means there is not one added. That Jesus Christ gives eternal life to everyone that God gave Him to save. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Oh, you need to believe these things. There are those that believe you can lose your salvation because they know nothing of salvation. They don't know about the grace of God. They don't know about election in Christ. They don't know about the five phases. They think you can lose your salvation because God put a few verses in the Bible that they trip over. He promised us He would do that. The word, the word of the Scriptures are to them a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They read a verse like Galatians 5.4 that says, Ye are fallen from grace and Christ has become of none effect to you. And they trip right over it and think and teach that you can lose your salvation. There's no salvation lost in Galatians 5.4. There's only confusion in the minds of the Galatians for not believing the truth about Jesus Christ, that there was nothing they could do to add to it. They had Jews coming in there that didn't know anything about salvation, trying to teach those poor Gentiles that they had to keep parts of the ceremonial law of the Jews in order to be saved. And Paul said, if you add one thing from that law to the work of Jesus Christ, then Christ becomes of no more value because the whole gospel of Christ is that it is His salvation alone and by Himself. And if you add anything to it, He's become of none effect. You've fallen from the proper understanding of grace. You're no longer believing the grace of God. You're believing the Jewish legalism of the Jews. Look at Romans 8. Preserved. How can anyone believe that you can lose your salvation when we have things like this said? First of all, verses 29 and 30 say, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, and whom he predestinated, them he also called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, if you're able to read, and see, you've got to be able to read, and that's all you've got to be able to do is read and believe. If you read and believe, then those that God foreknew and predestinated and called and justified, every single one of them is going to be glorified. There is no break in that golden chain of grace. This is the chain of grace. The ones that go in on the front end of this chain come out on the back end of it because they're all glorified. What shall we then say to these things of God before us who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nothing can be laid to their charge. You can't lay anything to their charge that they have to be perfectly obedient. You can't lay to their charge that they can't die with an unconfessed sin. You can't lay to their charge that they have to be baptized a certain way to get to heaven. Nobody can lay anything to the charge of God's elect because it is God that justifieth. And how does He justify? He chose us in Christ before the world began. And Jesus Christ, during time, lived a perfect life of righteousness for us. And it is applied to us in that great legal and forensic work called justification. And we're made holy by His sanctification. Look at verse 32. Didn't I preach this to you a couple years ago? I hope it's fresh in your memories. Jerry, do you still love Romans chapter 8? Is it it still up there in the top 5? Does it hit your top 40? Number 1. It's wonderful. 
verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All of salvation, all spiritual blessings are wrapped up in Christ Jesus. If God gave the biggest gift for us, then the other little gifts certainly will follow. That's the point of Romans 8.32. Look at 38. For I am persuaded. Thank you, Paul, for telling us about your persuasion because we're persuaded as well. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, including you, including me, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord, where we were chosen before the world began. We're preserved in Christ Jesus. Preserved in Christ Jesus. We were put in Him before the world began. We are securing Him forever. Because when He came to earth, He secured eternal life for every one of those God had given Him. And the Bible tells us He ever lives to make intercession for every single one of them so that He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. This is, our, this is the Gospel. You say, is that all in Jude 1.1? It is. It is all in Jude 1.1 and a whole lot more. Preserved in Christ Jesus. God's elect can never fall. You can't pluck us out of Christ's hand. We are put in Christ, and it's in His right hand. You think you're strong enough to peel those fingers open and take Him out? And take yourself out? Take anyone else out? You're in the hand of Jesus Christ, and you're in the hand of God, and no man can pluck you out of His hand. God had a purpose for creating and his purpose was that he would have a redeemed people and he named them all. He inscribed them on the palm of his hand. He put them in the Lamb's book of life. And every single one of them will be in heaven and not a single one lost. Right. Listen, I don't care. I am not saying this to justify sin. I don't care if you have a real serious problem with Philistine prostitutes and end your life in suicide. If you're in his hand, then it's the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ that will land you in heaven. And you know who I'm talking about. Samson is in Hebrews chapter 11. Now I can tell you this, that if you live a life like the prodigal son in riotous living with prostitutes, you are showing no one, including yourself and all of us, any evidence of eternal life. But the Bible gives us a few of these exceptions to make the point to us that we're preserved in Christ Jesus. Because I want to tell you something about Christ Jesus. He never visited a prostitute, and the only prostitutes he ever met, and there were many of them, he brought to repentance and preached to them the gospel. Amen. And when he laid down his life, he didn't lay it down as a dumb suicide. He laid down his life for others. Right. Preserved in Christ Jesus. God's elect can never fall. Though there are verses in the Bible that scare people. The one I mentioned a few minutes ago, look at it just so that you can see it in print before your eyes. We're about ready to close for our break. Galatians chapter 5. When we fall, we fall into sin. And we confess our sins and we rise again. The righteous man falleth seven times and riseth again. It's the wicked that falls and never gets up. 
because he stays in it the rest of his life. The righteous fall and rise again. We fall in our understanding. Your faith can be overthrown. You can be taught by a poor minister who doesn't teach you the truth but teaches you heresy. And your faith can be undermined and overthrown in various aspects of the gospel. But do you know what the Bible says in light of that statement and in light of faith being overthrown? But the Lord knoweth them that are His. You may lose track of the sight that you're His. You may lose track of what Jesus Christ did for you, but God doesn't lose track of you. Galatians, this is where I read to you. Galatians 5.1, stand fast. That means let's not be moved around. Fast means fastened. We're stuck down. We're glued down. We're fastened down. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Do you know what those words mean? It means that we are free from any bondage of, any yoke of bondage being put upon us by anyone, that there is something we must do to add to the work of Christ. There is nothing. Right. Stand fast. Don't let these false Jewish teachers that are hassling you Galatian churches confuse you any longer. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Taking on the Sabbath day, taking on circumcision, taking on meats and drinks, taking on holy days, taking on a relationship to Abraham. Don't take on any of that stuff, you Gentiles among the churches of Galatia. Stand fast in the freedom and liberty we have in Christ. Behold! I, Paul, say unto you, and this is the greatest apostle, and this is the apostle to the Gentiles, he magnified his office as such, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If you pick one piece of the law of Moses and say that it is necessary, you got to do it all. And you ain't doing any of it. Do you even know the 718 commandments of Moses' law? Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Do you want to understand the sense of your Bible, or do you just go with sound bites? Look at Galatians 5.4. It says, Christ is become of no effect unto you, and ye are fallen from grace. That sounds, in a soundbite, like you can lose your salvation. But what is the sense of those words? The sense is, and it's found in the middle clause, ye that are justified by the law. Is anyone justified by the law? No one is justified by the law. So that, that is in there to help you understand what Galatians 5.4 is saying. If you think that you are justified by the law, then your thoughts are making Christ of none effect and you are fallen from the right thinking about God's grace. Because God's grace isn't mixed with the works of the law or the yoke of bondage of Moses. You can't fall from grace except up here. And see, lots of people have fallen from grace up here. The most, most Christians that live in this world fall from grace in varying degrees up here. Because of lazy pastors who don't teach them the truth and from false brethren and false teachers who teach them a false concept of grace. So they fall from the proper understanding of grace. But they don't fall out of the hand of Jesus Christ, nor out of the hand of God, nor do they fall out of election, nor do they fall out of the book of life, nor do they fall out of God's decrees. Never. 
Nor do they fall out of perfection because they are perfect in the sight of God with Christ's perfection. If you think you're getting to heaven on your perfection, you're going to hell. In your thoughts. Because if you think your standing before God can be remedied, can be assisted, can be helped by your righteousness or your holiness, you have no righteousness or holiness in which to stand. We are going to stand naked in our righteousness and holiness before Him, but we are going to stand fully clothed in His righteousness and His holiness. Oh, preserved in Christ Jesus. Can you fall from grace? Of course you can fall from grace. You can get confused by false teachers telling you the wrong concept of grace. Then you fall from grace and Christ becomes of no value because you've put a yoke of bondage upon yourself that Jesus Christ didn't put there. He's already lifted. Jesus fulfilled the whole law and applied it all to us. And that's the only way anyone can ever keep the whole law is to have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to them. Thankfully, our eternal inheritance depends on His faithfulness, not on ours. Jude is going to elaborate at the end that it's God's ability to keep us from falling, not our ability. Though we may fall, though faith may be overthrown, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Arminians know nothing of grace or very little of grace. They end up depending on what they have done to add to the work of Christ to get into heaven. Calvinists see the elect as preserving themselves by perseverance. Jew didn't say persevering in Christ. Then they would become active. He said preserved in Christ Jesus. This is the work of God for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, so much. God doesn't guarantee our perseverance, but He sure guarantees our preservation. And there's a huge difference in the word, but I want to say this. Do you know what Jude really can be summarized as? This is my subtitle for the book of Jude. It's not inspired. Jude, preserved to persevere. Because the rest of this epistle is going to be about persevering. But our salvation is dependent upon God's preservation of us. So much more could be said on this subject. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus and called. That's us. These words are to us. Do you understand sanctification by God the Father? How you're sanctified by God the Father? I hope you do. Do you understand? Preserved in Christ Jesus. We were chosen in Him before the world began, and He has lifted up His hand to heaven and said, I will lose none of them. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What can separate us from the love of God that is in, where is it? In Christ Jesus, where we are and where all spiritual blessings are, and we were put in there before the foundation of the world. Nothing can take us out of there, and we shall receive all those spiritual blessings because we're preserved in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.